HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box and Clover, working together to provide restaurants with even more technology for a better hospitality experience. Visit getbento.com better to learn more. We often hear that when one door closes, another one opens. That's quite literally the case for Clover Hill in Brooklyn. It was the pandemic that forced the closure of the four-month-old Brooklyn Heights restaurant, but the reopening of the doors two years later came with a fresh culinary team and today's guest at the helm. Our guest today is Chef Charlie Mitchell of Clover Hill BK. Charlie has worked his way through some of New York City's finest restaurants, and Clover Hill has been transformed into a seven-course tasting menu. Last month, Clover Hill received its first Michelin star, and Charlie was named Michelin's Young Chef. So congratulations. Congrats um, and welcome. What an awesome thank you. year. And we're excited to chat about this journey. Um, Natalie, our social media manager, was like so, she was shooting at the Michelin event and was like so excited to have met you. And so that's how we all got connected. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Natalie's awesome. Yeah, she is. But so tell us about you and Clover Hill and how, how your journey to Clover Hill came to be. Uh, well, uh, pretty much so. I was. I was a part of the team back in 2019 when they first opened. Uh, like a friend of mine was a chef and I was like a transition myself trying to actually get out the country, ironically. And then COVID happened, right? So then the last couple of years, you know, I, you know, COVID happened. I went to DC and I cooked a little bit. And once the pandemic sort of slowed down, I wanted to make my way back to New York City because, you know, this is like home. And I love it here. Then I had a I had a first job lined up and it did you know it didn't go my way, and then I was just kind of unemployed, chilling, taking a little vacation time, just kind of mm-hmm. thinking, you know, figuring out what my next move was going to be. And then the owner Clay kind of just randomly texts me like, "Hey man, like what are you up to?" And I was like, "Well, actually nothing," <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And we took a meeting from there. We had coffee, and then we just figured out our goals were aligned, and we just wanted to do something cool and. I kind of had an attachment to the building, to the space, because I was already in it before, you know. <clears throat> so that's how we, how we got off the ground, you know. And from there, we just we opened this place in about, we started talking in November. We brought staff along in February. We opened up in February. And, you know, it's just been kind of running crazy ever since. So you opened up in February of 2022. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, February 18th, I believe. Yeah. And you started, because we were looking back at like some of the opening presses, we were um, getting, you know, getting ready for this for this show. And it was interesting to be, so you started off doing breakfast and lunch and then a tasting menu two nights a week. And now you guys yep. are, are dinner only and it's all tasting menu. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So before, you know, they, their model before they were seven days, daytime, five days dinner. And before, you know, the space had a history of dinner not working here. You know, even with the previous owners, dinner was never as busy as brunch, right? So, look, you know, Clay himself, he wanted to always like a, a dinner spot. And that's what I'm all about as well, you know, that along with my dreams. So we decided to take it slow. We started, we came back with the daytime program. We did dinner two nights a week. And then I think we went three nights a week. And then we went four nights a week and we pulled back on daytime. And then now, you know, we just had our last brunch service last week. And now we're dedicated five days dinner, no brunch right now. And we'll all focus on dinner right now. Are you so happy to say goodbye to brunch? I feel like that's every chef's fantasy. It's be like, so, so happy. <laughs> <laughs> How was that transition going from, I mean, were you guys looking at, you know, revenue numbers? Were you looking at how many people in butts and seats and stuff like that to sort of make that transition? Exactly. Yeah, like, honestly, it was about, staffing and like revenue right it wasn't just like oh i don't want to cook eggs like i i don't mind cooking eggs and the brunch food we did was you know we thought it was very nice but it was like you know at the price point that the guests wanted factoring with the cost of ingredients factored into how much staff i needed to like run a solid food we wanted to do it just wasn't working like it wasn't a very profitable service so it turned into kind of like uh we were only doing it for the neighborhood not necessarily for the business and at that point, it was like, well, we should start making decisions for ourselves, for our staff morale. You know, we were all closing Friday night and coming in Saturday morning. And then you're doing two services on Saturday. It just wasn't like a good rig. It wasn't like a healthy thing. And it just didn't work for the numbers, you know. So we just said, hey, why well, force it, you know. Let's just make a better decision for us. When you when you guys reopened in February, was the intention always, it sounds like it, building up the dinner service was always part of the intention, but was the goal always to just be like, we're going to do this tasting menu and transition it slowly? Or was it just like, let's test and see what, what works and see what sticks where, where the revenue is really coming from? We always wanted to grow the dinner program, but they were very nervous about it. And we never said that we were going to be only brunch. That was never in the plan. I mean, we were never planned on canceling brunch. That was never in the plan. Uh, it just kind of happened over time as we have more data, more data, more data. It just became a talking point but no we we actually were always going to keep at least saturday sunday morning brunches uh, that was the plan out the gate how's the because you, you said it's like it's for the neighborhood so how has the neighborhood responded to tasting menu you know <laughs> to the shift like what's what's been the feedback uh they love it honestly like you know we have we have you have some who like still send us dms like yo what happened to brunch i loved it or are you guys going to reopen so we get that and we let them keep it down easy, you know, just say, hey, you know, we're figuring out, we're, we're figuring out our staffing situation right now. But dinner, I mean, people love it. You know, we have people here who are like so happy that they can, you know, walk two blocks, four blocks, 10 minutes and come have like a nice meal and not, you know, have to go to Manhattan, right? Like that's really what it's about, right? People in Manhattan don't want to cross the bridge to come to Brooklyn and sometimes people don't want to leave Brooklyn and go have but tasting me, they want to do it right here at home. That makes a lot of sense. The, the, tell me, tell me about the. Take me back, I guess. What happened with the space during 
during the shutdown? Did they just, did they have a good deal and a good arrangement with the landlord to be able to let it sit and hold it? It doesn't, there's not a lot of stories where you hear that people held empty for a couple of years and, and then were able to regroup and rebuild. Well, I mean, honestly, like Clay got a lot of offers during that time to kind of like sell the lease. So people wanted to take over the space. Uh, he was very persistent on saying no to everybody because he didn't get to live out, you know, his dream of the space. And then the landlord was very flexible. Yeah, like he gave us a deal. You know, he was very understanding. He, they, it just let us, you know, like, hey, we're going to come back at some point, and when we get back, we're going to work this thing out. You know, and they just worked with us very, very well. And you know, luckily we were able to hold on to it. And, you know, now I'll be doing better than ever. Did you have, did, were there a lot of like, um, were there any or a lot of design changes and stuff within the space from the original concept to what it is now? No, actually none. Actually, like we didn't even, we opened up with the same table, same chairs. 95% uh, of the kitchen equipment is the same. We opened up with the same plateware and glassware. We obviously had to clean everything and like wash it. <laughs> make sure. Dust in make here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Everything was covered in dust and rust and cobwebs, you know, but we actually just, and when we, when we opened Fall New, we finally made a changeover in our plateware just to bring a new identity, you know, get new wine glasses and things like that. But the skeleton of this place is still here, you know, it looked almost just like it did in 2019. Are you finding that the tasting menu and especially, you know, with that new format, um, and especially after like the Michelin star, are you finding more destination folks are coming over, you know, so it's like this neighborhood restaurant that you created for the neighborhood is seeing some, some traffic from, I don't know, people in Manhattan. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, immediately. Immediately. I mean, I think like maybe the weekend of like the Michelin announcement, we had guests in here who were like, Oh, we were regulars at Danielle, regulars at EMP, you know, we're so happy that you guys are in Brooklyn and, and you know, or regulars at like Oxala's place that have been on the map in Brooklyn. They didn't know we were here yet because we weren't on their radar, you know? Mm -hmm. So we get a, a lot more than a hundred percent change. To totally different. Like you feel the change in, you know, we have an open kitchen. So guests interact with us a lot, you know, in the past. Um, and, and we have people coming from Manhattan all, all the time and people who are still discovering us, you know, people all had no idea you were here before you know, yada, yada, and it's a complete different clientele once you get like the star, really different. I also, I mean, I also think it's interesting just going back to the point about you guys just reopened, same decor, same, you know, same everything, same chairs, tables. And so the vibe is totally the same from like, you know, breakfast and lunch spot to now a Michelin star tasting menu. How, how do you, how do you feel about that? Like, do you, how do guests perceive that, that they're in, you know, the space that maybe feels a little bit more casual than like you said, EMP and Danielle? Uh, I think they like it. You know, I think it plays to our favor and just like the, like a surprise factor, like a wow factor, you know, like I think, you know, at dinner, the, the, the space is very beautiful. It's very intimate, you know, it's very dark lit. And so I, I don't think it feels casual necessarily, but it doesn't feel like you know, at a plush Manhattan, like mm -hmm. dining room, you know, and I think people in Brooklyn like love that, you know, they love that this, you know, brick walls and the artwork is kind of vintage -y and it looks, it has some like personality to it and some originality to it and they love it. They embrace it a lot. Uh, people comment about it all the time. I love that. I love to see like 
you know, dining shift in a way where dining room can feel, you know, more accessible. I also noticed, so what other, I, you know, it's like speaking of the changes and I think it's really interesting. A lot of people go in with like this hyper-focus and they're, you know, they're unwilling to change things. And I think it's really smart that you, you all have let like the data really take you through what your guests want. So I'm curious what other changes do you see coming down the future or is five days dinner? That's it. That's what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think we're trying to like, for our own sanity, like lock down on like a format, you know? Because like it's exhausting to kind of keep changing and keep going back to the drawing board. So I think that the five days a week dinner service, uh, we're going to stick with that. Uh, we're changing our seating just a little bit, just to give us a little bit more time. But we're just kind of focused on like changing some of the details and just trying to like elevate ourselves, you know, our hospitality, our cuisine. Uh, that's just what we're focused on now, like growing that, you know, and like and, and really trying to figure out like what we can do to make the experience a little bit more special or more memorable or like. what's going to give us the most longevity as far as like our identity and what we're offering to people. I think that's what the conversations are about now. (laughs) But I'm honestly, I don't ever want this place to be like a seven day restaurant or any of that stuff. It's too stressful. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And tell me a little bit about like, as you're developing that identity, how's that filtering into like the format of the menu and, and like what you're serving and how, and how that all you see that playing out. Uh, well, I mean, I think some obvious things are like uh, price point, like, hey, like, what's a good price point for us to be at? And does that make us, you know, approachable? Does it make us, does it ostracize us? Uh, you know, where does it put us on like the spectrum of like fine dining? You know, I think that's kind of what we think about the most. Um, and for me as a chef, it's like, you know, it's nice to be able to start creating dishes and just have enough room to serve exactly what I want and give and give the experience that I want them to have, you know. Have you gotten a lot of feedback on like menu price and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, we actually do all the time. People tell us that we're too cheap. Well, I was I was actually curious. I wanted to, I had met, written a note to ask because I saw when you first opened, you were one hundred and thirty five dollars for. And how mm-hmm. many courses do you do? Seven. seven is that seven? It's 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 seven ish. It's it's eight right now. Eight. Eight. Yes. Yeah, and then I saw now it's one seventy five. I mean, I thought I was like one thirty five is like oh one eighty five. Earlier this week it was one seventy five. Inflation is rampant. No, I'm easy kidding. answer to that, I suppose. You just say, "Give me some more money," then like add it into the tip if we're too cheap. Yeah, November first. November first, we went to one ninety five, um, but it was hard, you know. But we felt like 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 listen, like I didn't have a, a name in the city, you know. Even chef as a GM as an owner. You know, he doesn't have a name at the restaurateur, so we felt that it wasn't appropriate for us to open up. Like, hey, we're opening up at one one ninety, one ninety five. Like, we we wanted to gain trust. Yeah. You know, and we wanted people to like, you know, like we it couldn't be too cheap, but we wanted people to be like, okay, I'm willing to try it out. You know, so we went from one thirty five, and then we went one fifty five, one seventy five, and now we're one ninety five. Um, just because we feel like we have more trust now, we have we think people. I mean, obviously, the star helps a lot because people tend to trust any place with a mission star, right? Mm-hmm. And but we also have people from our from regulars and stuff who come by who's had you know the summer menu or spring menu, um, and they're just more receptive to it. They're like, "Well, my last meal here was awesome, so I'm willing to pay whatever," and like that's a good feeling, you know. With the Michelin star, I would imagine that that also will bring 
other reviews. How does that, how does that hit with your nerves? <laughs> you would think, but we actually haven't, you know, we actually, I, we've had some decent amount of press, you know, on the mission yeah. side, but like we haven't gotten any, any of the New York publications that have not come here. You know, there's been no eater, no infatuations, no New York times. Like we haven't gotten any of that. Stuff maybe, not maybe anymore. They're coming now. <laughs> <laughs> like, they just, like they haven't come, like they haven't come yet. So, you know, we, we kind of feel like we're over the hump a little bit as far as like, I mean, obviously like New York Times is like a big one, right? Like every chef can right. hit that. But the Michelin thing was just like a sigh of relief or it was like, well, if they love it, hopefully these other people won't hate it when they finally decide to come and we should be in a good spot, you know? <laughs> well, it sounds like your community loves you. And if Michelin loves you, I think you're on, I think you're good. I think you're on to something. So yeah, yeah, hopefully. I mean, it is interesting. And the 195 hasn't hurt like bookings and everything's still filling up and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a testament to like, I think people are always really scared about raising prices. And I think it's a testament to like, it's, you know, do it because what's the harm? You see if you don't have bookings and you change it. But I think you guys did it in a really smart way. Um, and honestly, eight courses for 195 is a bargain still. That's really good value. Yeah, it's not bad, right? I mean, I think like my job as a chef is like I'm I'm I pay attention to like restaurants and pricing and what products they're serving, what we're serving. So like to me, I just made a commitment to always make sure the value is in the menu. You know, like I'm we're not putting like extra tax on it because we have a mission start. It was like, no, you're getting like great product, great ingredients, good cooking techniques, and like I think people see that when they experience it, you know. Exciting news for restaurants. Bento Box and Clover have teamed up to provide even more technology for a better hospitality experience. With over 70% of diners researching restaurants online before they go in person, a strong digital presence is more important than ever. Bento Box's website, marketing tools, and commerce platform help restaurants get discovered online, make more money, and engage diners in person and virtually. And Clover's world-class POS and payment system streamlines daily operations for a totally seamless experience. With Bento Box and Clover working together, restaurants now have an all-in-one solution that makes it easy to deliver better hospitality from the kitchen to tableside and beyond. Bento Box and Clover, the right recipe for hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash better to learn more. That's getbento.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones. And I'm your co-host, Darren Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun. Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field 
as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram. Cool. You want to do order fire? Sure. All right. This is our our order fire. We're going to go through this. These are 10 questions we basically ask everybody. Um, Meant to be fun, quick answers. Okay. Uh, I will start. Charlie, what is your favorite menu item right now? Uh, we have a, a rice dish that I love. Uh, we do a short grain rice with a uni savion and some caviar on top. It's, it's really good. Sounds good. So this one doesn't really work for you because it's, uh, it's like, I'm it's for yeah. a drink. What's that? We could change it to a drink. Right. So we always, we ask most ordered menu item, but is there a most requested menu item or is there something that stays on the menu because people would riot if you took it off? <laughs> yeah, we do these uh, ricotta dumplings that we always have on the menu, pretty much for like vegetarians and whatnot. And they've been on the menu since day one, and people love them. So they seem like they're never going anywhere. Ricotta <laughs> dumplings. That's what happens. Do you do right? two, do you do a full vegetarian tasting menu and a full omnivore one? No, we only do one menu. We don't do uh, vegetarians or vegans at the moment. What is the best uh, food cost dish on the current menu? Ooh. That's a tough one. <laughs> mm. uh, probably our fish course. It's probably it. It's the most yeah. affordable dish we have right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Why is why would that why would that be? Normally, you would think that the fish would be. Well, like the, I think like the fish itself is expensive, but like the, right. we serve it with like a ham hot broth and like collard greens, so like they're very affordable. So like your cost on a plate is really kind of just the fish. Mm. Sounds good. Um, something you're doing to make your business more sustainable could be any sense of the word. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we try to focus on our sourcing as far as that, as far as like the sustainable and whatnot. Uh, we try to minimize waste as much as possible and reuse and repurpose things. And, you know, we also try to focus on like, you know, like the sustainability of our staff as well and try to like give them a good work-life balance and like not have cooks in here for 90 hours a week, you know? So do you have, so this is sort of, you sort of answered the next question, but um, how do you plan to hire and retain great employees? Uh, we, you know, hiring was really tough for us out the gate. Um, but, you know, lately we've been getting a lot of, a lot of applications. But I think, you know, we run, I like to run more of like a personality test and like a goal-oriented test opposed to like hiring people just because they're very experienced, you know. So I like people who have a good attitude, good work ethic, and like have goals and want to be chefs or like business owners. And then from there, like we can teach you how to cook. <laughs> That's not the hard right. part, as long as you're willing. A lot's changed in the in the like hiring process of kitchens and you know people speaking up about doing you know stages that don't end and working for free until they get hired 
three weeks later. What What is your plan? How do you guys bring people in? Do you do just a sit-down interview and then you come in the kitchen? Do you do a trail day? How's, how's it happening these days? I like to do both. I like to do an interview just so we can have a conversation. And I like to bring you in in trails so that I can make sure our personalities match. And then I like to let, let you try a bunch of food. And that way you can choose to like, okay, I believe in this food or what the place is doing or not. You know, I want to make sure they're very sure before they commit to working here. Right. Do you yeah. actually give a personality test? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think so. Like I have my ways, you know, maybe if they're like sneaky ways, but I like to test people a little bit and see how they, you know, how they feel with pressure and can they take direction? Can they, are they okay with criticism? You know, and also like, can they have fun a little bit as well? You know, like I like to figure all those things out because we have such a small team. It's only, what, five of us, six of us? Oh, wow. So if you have, you know, one or two bad eggs in a bunch, it just doesn't work. It throws off the whole system, yeah. you know. Totally. Does your schedule, your operating hours, allows you to have one team that's always in? Exactly. Yeah, we just have one team. You know, one team for dinner. I got two people who work in the morning, and, like, that's it. That's so nice. And everybody gets two days off in a row. Um, tell us about the worst building or developing moment when you were reopening in early 2022. The, the worst building moment? Yeah, or, like, verse, like... There any oh shit things yeah, that sort of happened like, when you yeah. guys were trying to reopen the, the you know, <laughs> oh, size well, of dust and cobwebs? Yeah, like, we didn't have too much of that because, like I said, it was already, like, uh, a, a restaurant before. Um, I think my biggest issue as a chef was, like, the way that the former chef used the space and the equipment that he had. And we realized that, like, our electricity in the basement couldn't keep up with all the new equipment that we had. So that was like my like, oh shit moment. It was like, okay, we can only use one blender at a time or we can't use the blender in the RoboCoop all at the same time. Like, you know, it was like, what? The blow on the circuit, place, right? You know? <laughs> is it all, it's not an all electric kitchen, right? Uh, it's all electric. Oh, it is all electric. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, How was that? Has it changed from like the kitchens you were in before? Yeah, it's been a learning experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like even now, like we're approaching winter again and the kitchen is freezing. It's cold during service. It's no like ambient heat, you know. Um, we all had to like, you know, have an open mind with how we cook in this space because it's all electric. Um, and, but we learn it. We I think we do a lot better now than we did when we first opened for sure. What is what's the biggest? I mean, is that the biggest uh, hindrance? I would imagine that I, I haven't done a lot of electric cooking. Um, nor have I ever been in a kitchen that was all electric, but is it, does it make it slower? Is it harder to like, to put something together quickly or on the fly or whatever? It was actually the opposite. It's actually extremely fast. It's faster. So like okay. things boil over faster, things burn faster. Gotcha. And it's like, it's like a, it goes zero to hundred very fast. Um, and we also only have one cooktop with six burners. So there are days here at like the beginning of the week, like our Mondays or, well, it's Tuesday now for our Monday. We're trying to do all of our cooking projects. It's like, yo, we got like a, it's like a sign of cheat at the bar for a pool table, you know? Because like, <laughs> we don't have enough first? cooking space. Yeah, like who gets the burners oh first? God. And what's our schedule on, on this thing? You know, because we only have six burners to do prep on. What about your um, most influential role model within or outside the hospitality industry? I don't know if I have just like one person. 
you know, like I'm a huge basketball fan. So I guess like an easy one for me to say is somebody like LeBron or something. <laughs> but I think anyone like that, anyone who, you know, like the LeBrons or sports figures or people who are like work very hard at like a craft and they, they believe in themselves are people that I look, I look up to. You know what I mean? That's where I look at the most, you know. I appreciate that. That's the first time I've had LeBron mentioned. I know, but there's a lot. I feel like there's a lot of like synergies between team sports and the restaurant industry. Like I think there's like, I'm surprised that parallel's not drawn more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, huge. A lot of similarities, you know, and especially we preach it a lot in the kitchen because we're such a small team. So, you know, everybody has to play their role. They have to play their part. They have to deliver. And also like communication has to be like key, which is very important in like team sports, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we rely on each other so much in this small kitchen opposed to like when you're in these kitchens with 20, 30 cooks, you know, you don't really, you don't really have to learn each other the way you do in a system like ours. So it's something that we reference a lot, you know, team building and being a team and communication with each other. Right. The big kitchen, you, you learn the guy to your left and the guy to your right. And that's mm-hmm. really, and the guy that's telling you what to do. Exactly. Um, what is your, what's been like the best business resource that you've been given or advice? And that can be, you know, literally somebody giving you advice. It could be something from a website or from a podcast, from a TV show. Uh, well, I've had a couple of chefs be really nice to me. You know, like I think when you're like trying to find great ingredients or you're trying to find all these things, I have a couple of chefs, you know, you know, Chef Ryan, who I worked for in DC is very great for me. Like any question I have about anything in the world, you know, he's there for me. Uh, you know, Chef Ruben, like the auto mix team. I think he's doing R and D there now. Like he's also been like awesome to me. I can ask him anything and he'll give me the phone number to anywhere, let me know where he's getting this, we're getting that. He's been great. Um I would say those two popped my mind the most. And I also had Chef Bill from uh the Nexus Club. Uh, me and him started having a relationship and he gave me a couple words of wisdom before just about like know how to bring it every day how to wake up every day and you know try to get better every single day and try to push your cook to get better every day and those three i think stand out to me the most since i've started this journey with this restaurant i love that what about one thing you'd tell a young chef um about the path to ownership just try to learn it all you know just be a sponge you know like like yes be a chef and work at your craft but also be a student of like business, you know, because you're going to need it one day if you want to try to own a restaurant, you know, like it's so much that I've had to learn the hard way, <laughs> mm-hmm. like since we've been here and like just try to be a student of it all, ask the right questions, you know, don't be too shy, you know, networking will come in handy one day, you know, um, that's the advice I would give, just like be a sponge, soak it all up, ask all the questions in the world, to anybody who will ask them for you. That's very true. I liked how you said you interview people to see if they like want to be managers and want to like learn about the business too, because it is so important. Were there places in your, in your um, tenure where you were able to learn beyond the kitchen essentially? Yeah. I mean, like like I I mentioned Chef Ryan from DC because he is, he's a great chef. He's a great cook, but he's also like, you know, very business forward and, you know, I would ask him a lot of questions and he was just extremely open to, about everything from the light bill to the rent to the PR bill to building relationships with purveyors. You know, he opened my eyes to like a lot of like, okay, this is how you become successful. This is what it looks like. This is what it means. 
and, you know, he put a lot of things in perspective for me uh, very fast. That's cool. I, th I think a lot of people don't don't know or aren't inclined to ask those questions. And so then they just, you know, they get to this point to where they're yeah, the executive right. chef or even a, a partial owner and don't have those answers because it, it didn't really dawn on them. Yeah, like some chefs are too shy. Some chefs want you to work for them for forever. So they may not want to give you all the answers, you know. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, you got you to gotta be the right person as well who's willing to, like, give you the information. Right. Yeah. Uh, last question is, what is your why? Why did you choose to be a restaurant owner or a chef? Um, I just always loved it. You know, I always loved cooking. And I felt like, you know, if you ever want to establish yourself and have a real, you know, career and legacy and whatnot, like you have to work your way to ownership at some point, you know, like, I feel like it's not a good space for chefs to always have, like, the restaurant owners to tell them what to serve and, Tell them how to cook and how to price their menu. It's like if you ever want full creative control, you know, even when you're wrong, you know, you have to work your way to like ownership. That's the only way. Very true. Very true. Um, huge congratulations on all the success. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and we will be in personally to eat sometime yeah, soon, as soon as we can. Yeah, please come. Yeah, please come. Um, how do we find Clover Hill? on uh on the web and on uh instagram and how do we find you on instagram or social uh social our, our social is just clover hill bk uh and we take reservations on resi right now okay cool our uh we are at we are opening soon and at tillet nyc um thanks again charlie congrats on on everything all right thank you thank you so much opening soon is powered by simplecast Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.